I once listened to a radio interview with a famous science fiction author, Michael Isaac Asimov, one of the founders of modern science fiction. And he once wrote a short story called Nightfall about a civilization that was living on a planet in a multi-star system. And because of all the close bright stars in his story, they only experienced night once every 2,000 years or so. Asimov said he was surprised that it was always so popular because he said throughout the story that the civilization would fall because everyone would go mad when they were exposed to night, which they'd never seen before. And at the end, surprise, surprise, everyone went mad, set fire to the civilization and burnt the place down. He was at a science fiction convention and the psychologist was giving a presentation on nightfall. So he said he went to look and to watch because he might get some insights as to why it was more popular. Not for psychological reasons, but because of course he got paid for writing the stories. And if he could write another popular one, that would be good. As it turned out, the talk was about what motivated the author to write the story. And afterwards, as Asimov put it, quivering with indignation, he went to speak to the psychologist. And he said to him, that isn't what was in the author's mind when he wrote the story. How do you know, said the speaker. Because I'm the author, said Asimov. Well, just because you wrote it is the response. What makes you think you know why you wrote it? Think about that. If I asked you who knows you best, what would you say? Your parents, perhaps, or your siblings, maybe your best friend, your spouse, or your children. But do any of these know you as well as you know yourself? Yes, they may know how you behave, they may know how you speak, your temperament, some of your desires, or even why you write science fiction stories. But do they know all your thoughts? all your desires, even the ones that you keep firmly locked up inside because you're ashamed of them. Psalm 139 tells us there's someone who knows you even better than you know you, and he knows me even better than I know me. The first six verses of the psalm talk about God's knowledge of each one of us. But let's recognize this isn't abstract knowledge. It's not God thinking, oh, I want to find out about Gary or Barry or Roy or Daria and going to an encyclopedia and pulling it down and flicking through to the relevant page. It's about a relationship, as Daria said when she started that reading. It's about God's relationship with David in this case as an individual. It's David, the person that God has searched and known. It is David's action, his sitting down and is rising up, his path that God knows. It's David's thought that God knows and has known even before David thought them. And just as a quick aside, the phrase far away in verse 2 is probably better read as long before. Because God isn't far from any of us. And we'll go into a little bit more on that later. But then it's David's words that are known as well before he can even utter them. And not just David, but each one of us, God knows each one of us, 
just like that. Now, being watched can be unnerving. But isn't that due to not knowing what the watcher may do with the information they gather about you? If you're at work and your boss is standing behind your shoulder looking at what you're doing on your computer screen, don't you get nervous? Even if the intention is good in why the information is being gathered, why you're being observed, don't we always have that suspicion that the information may be used for something else, something less benevolent? So how do you feel about God watching you as closely as the psalm says? Well, if you believe God is sitting there with a notebook, writing down everything you do wrong, ready to judge you, it will understandably be very uncomfortable. But that isn't what, God is, uh, sorry, what David is describing here. Look at verse 5. In the church translation, it said, God hems me in before and behind. Other versions translate it differently. The Orthodox Hebrew Bible puts it, you've enclosed me, put a wall around me. And the same Hebrew word can also be translated as hedge, hedged, you know, put a hedge round, with a sense of protection rather than imprisoning or restricting. What David is saying is that God has encircled him with protection. God is guarding his back. God is going before him, like the song said earlier. In fact, God is all around him. Nothing and no one can get to David or us without going through God first. And that's not all God does. He lays his hand on David. He tenderly reassures David of his presence through his touch. In Matthew 10, 28-31, Jesus said, Don't fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them falls to the ground underneath of your father, and even the hairs of your head are all counted. It's obviously a harder job on some of us than it is for us on others. So don't be afraid. You are of more value than many sparrows. We should note, however, what Jesus is saying is not that we can't be hurt or even killed once we start following Jesus. It's clear from the many martyrs there have been from Stephen onwards that that isn't the case. And what Jesus said in Matthew 10 is pretty unambiguous. He said, don't fear those who can kill your body. Implication being that someone might try. Jesus was teaching his disciples that they would face persecution for their faith in that passage and in the bit just before it. But it's our destiny to be with Jesus forever that is safe. That if we trust Jesus as our Lord, we cannot be snatched away from him, as he said in John 10, 27 and 29. David was amazed and overwhelmed by that knowledge of God's care and protection, he said in verse 6. Do you know, not intellectually, but deep in your heart, feel that you are loved and protected by God, even though God knows everything about you, even your darkest secrets, your darkest thoughts and deeds. When we consider that God loved you enough for Jesus to die for you, how could we doubt that he will protect and guard us? That doesn't mean, as I said, we may not experience suffering, especially suffering for our faith. It doesn't mean we won't die. 
it doesn't mean we, that we might not even have to die for our faith. But it does mean that God will deliver us and will deliver on his promise of eternal life for us if we believe in Jesus. And if we move on to look at verses 7 to 12, David records another amazing truth that he's found about God. Now, there are two ways of reading these words, and it's quite easy to read them and think that David is looking for somewhere to hide from God. For fallen man, and even some people who profess faith, hiding from God can feel an attractive option. Think about it. Immediately after the fall, what did Adam and Eve do? They hid from God. And when Jonah was told by God to go to Nineveh and preach to them, what did he do? He got on a ship and tried to run away as far as he could in exactly the opposite direction to avoid obeying. So the question for each of us, do we try to hide from God? Particularly when we know we've gone badly wrong in some particular way, when we fail, when we try to serve, or to avoid a call from God? It's easy to do sometimes. We may not physically run away, we may not hide under a bush or behind a tree, but we just keep God at our arm's length and pretend it doesn't, not us, it isn't me. That's not really what you want. Well, the psalm tells us this effort is futile. Wherever we can go, God can go. And he got there first. In verse 9, David talks about taking the wings of the morning, moving as fast as the light in the morning sweeps across the world, and going as far as he could away from where he is now. But he says, even then, God not only finds us at our destination, but he's there first. He's ahead of us, waiting for us. But that's not the right interpretation. David isn't looking to hide from God. Even when he sinned in his adultery with Bathsheba and then his murder of Uriah, her husband, to cover it up, David didn't try to hide from God. When his sin was pointed out to him, he repented. He confessed of his sin and sought God's mercy. Read the first few verses of Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before, you, before me. Against you, you alone, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. Those aren't the words of a man who is trying to escape from God. Those are the words of a man who is throwing himself into God's hands and trusting in God's mercy. And in these verses in Psalm 139, David is celebrating that no matter where he is, God is with him. Nothing, not heaven nor hell, nor height nor depth, nor distance nor darkness can hide us or separate us from God. Just think about that. Verse 11. But why is God with us? Well, verse 9 tells us, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me fast. So wherever we are, no matter how far from home we may be, how hidden from other people, God is still there with us, guarding us and guiding us, as a parent guards and guides a small child. 
leading them by the hand. Isn't that amazing? And that's something that we can experience too. It's not for nothing that Psalm 139 is known as the Submariner's Psalm. Even in the depths of the sea, when no one outside the submarine, and sometimes not even everyone on board the submarine, knows where it is, not even the people who in the Admiralty that sent us out on our operation, even there, I can testify in the depths of the ocean, I've experienced God. God has been there holding me in his hand. Then the next six verses from 13 to 18 turn back to consider again how much God knows about us. It's a parallel to the first six verses. But this time David is looking back to before he was even born, rather than his life experiences. He talks about God forming his inward parts. Perhaps better translated as inward being, as, in, as the Hebrew word can be translated kidneys, or even heart in other places. And the kidneys and the heart were considered as the seat of emotion and affection. In other words, God forms our minds, our characters, our emotions, our personalities. And God knitted together the physical structure of our bodies. Even when we were still unborn, still in the womb, God knew us and knows us. But God's knowledge of us goes back even further than that. Verse 16 says that God knows not only how long we're going to live, but what's going to happen to us in those days of life. And has known since before creation. We should be encouraged by those words. Our lives aren't governed by chance and random circumstance or people's desires and plans. They're planned and prepared by God. And as Paul wrote in Ephesians 2.10, we are what he made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. God has a plan for each one of us. And that plan is for our good. Jeremiah 29.11, for surely I know the plan have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. And in Romans 8.28, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purposes. So no matter how dark our circumstances are, no matter how hard our path may be, God is working out his plan for us. He is in charge. He is sovereign and we're safe in his hand. Indeed, in verse 18, David talks about coming to the end and still being with God. David knew he was with God before the start of his life, right through to the very end. But look at his choice of words. In verse 18, he says, I am still with you. Whereas earlier in the psalm, for example, in verses 5-10, David David talks about God being with him. Now, I am still with you. Obviously, works the other way around. It includes that sense of God being with you. But it also expresses an idea of being at peace with God. In that right relationship with God, that means we can remain constantly in God's presence, even during and after death itself. And that's what Jesus bought for us on the cross through his death and resurrection. Now, while I was preparing the sermon, I found a number of um, 
other sermons on the on the thing, articles and even commentaries on the on the psalm. And it was surprising how many people stopped at verse 18 and didn't go into 19 to 24. And perhaps looking at it, you can see why. Oh, that you would kill the wicked. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Those words ring harshly in modern ears. Didn't Jesus teach us to love our enemies? In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 43 and 44. It also seems out of place. The rest of it's about God's relationship with David. So why is now he's suddenly talking about hating people and looking for God to kill them? And some of the commentators out there have actually said, when he wrote this, David was quite right, uh, was absolutely wrong. Now we know that David made mistakes in his life, and he committed some major sins. Adultery and murder certainly qualify in that count. But this isn't a narrative about David's life and his human failing. It's in a part of the Bible which is referred to as the wisdom literature. It's teaching material for believers. And these are words that God inspired David to write. David, the man who was described as a man after God's own heart in 1 Samuel 13, 14. And in 1 Kings 15, 5, he's described as the man who did what was right in the sight of the sight of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. So surely David wasn't wrong in what he wrote. How do we understand these verses? Well, most importantly, we need to recognize that God will deal with sinners. The wicked, the bloodthirsty, those who malign God, those who try to put themselves in God's place. And they will face eternal punishment, hell for their sin. Just as each one of us here did before we accepted Jesus as our Lord. Do we really believe that? David did, and he was asking that that judgment should come soon so that the world would be put right. But how do we respond to those who are in rebellion against God in the meantime? Our colleagues at work, our neighbors, members of our own family. Well, David talks about hating those who hated God. But Jesus said, our love for him should be greater than that for our immediate families, Matthew 10, 36 and 38. But in Matthew 8, 21 and 22, he showed what it might cost when a man came to him and said, I want to follow you, but let me go first and bury my father. What did Jesus say? Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Put Jesus first. Whoever and whatever else we might love, that has got to come second and a distant second to our love for Jesus and our obedience to him. But we can also see how God responds to sinners through Jesus. We were all in the ranks of the wicked at some time, separated from God by our rebellion and determination to put ourselves first in God's rightful place, and so subject to God's wrath and judgment. But God sought us out and made a way for us to come back to him. As we're told in Romans 7, 8, God proves his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Despite our sin, despite our rebellion, God loved us enough for Jesus to come into the world to live as one of us, 
to show us the Father through his perfect life, then to die on a Roman cross and be raised to life again. And it's through that death and resurrection that we can come back to God and be adopted in his family. So our attitude to those who hate God has to be to share with them both the bad news and the good news. And the bad news we need to share is that there is a judgment coming, and no matter how good a life they think they have lived, or even may, have, may even have lived, they haven't met God's perfect standard. So they are guilty, and they will be punished. And the good news is that God has provided the way for them to be spared that judgment and punishment by taking it on himself in the person of Jesus and his sacrifice. And it's our task as Christians to witness to what God has done for us, even though we didn't deserve his mercy and grace. But for our witness to be effective, we need to be following Jesus obediently. It's so easy to let ourselves be conformed to the way the world does things, to be squeezed into the world rather than living differently. And if we do, that devalues what we have to say about Jesus. Now, David didn't know the full gospel that we have, he was, but he was aware of the need for his life to reflect God's standards and God's ways. And so he finishes the psalm with a prayer that God will show him any wicked way in him so that it can be dealt with. And ask then that God will lead him in the everlasting way. This should be our prayer too, each day, that God will reveal our faults to us. Looking at the beginning where I said, how much do you know yourself? Who knows you more? Sometimes we don't know ourselves. Going back to the example of Asimov, he might have written the story, but did he really know why he wrote the story? Do we know really what motivates us to do things? But we should pray that God would reveal our faults to us, that he will then give us the grace to repent, to turn away from those sins, and through his Holy Spirit, that he will change us to be more like Jesus day by day. We need to keep close to God, to hold his hand as a child holds their parent and their hand is held by them. Secure in the knowledge that unlike anyone else, God knows the real us. Despite what we've been, what we may have done, what we are now, Jesus loves each one of us enough to die for us. Let's ensure, then, that the way we live our lives reflects our gratitude for what Jesus has done for us the fact he restored our relationship with our Heavenly Father and allowed God to adopt us into his family as his sons and daughters. And let's also make sure that we live and speak as witnesses for Jesus wherever and whenever we have the opportunity so that others can have their relationship with God restored too.